You're the cream in my coffee. You're the gin in my martini. You're the vodka in my tonic. You're the rum in my zombie. Yeah, you're the cat's pajamas. You're the bee's knees. Welcome to Book, where two guys talk about films and stuff. I'm Livia Snedden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Yeah, tonight's going to be a little bit different than usual. Um, it, it's a it's a special episode. We're going to be talking about um, a film, which was originally a story, or a couple stories, really. So uh, the subject for tonight is the film uh, Fuckload of Scotch Tape, uh, which was written and directed by Julian Grant, which is adapted from a couple stories written by Jedediah Ayers called Fuckload of Scotch Tape and Mahogany and Monogamy. Let's not forget it's more uh, family-friendly title, Flossed. F-L-O-S-T, Flossed. That's right. So Jed was kind enough to invite us to a uh, cast and friends screening of Flossed. So the first time anybody in the general public got to see this movie, and uh, that's what kind of inspired us to do this episode. Uh, so big thanks to Jed Ayers for, uh, for having us out. Yeah, and for Julian Grant for uh, being a really good host. Like, uh, we'd never met him before. But he was like super nice to everybody. He was a really welcoming dude and very, very energetic. <laughs> yes, he is. He, he's passionate about what he does. And that's that's what I think I mean, it really came through in his film, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And um, we'll be talking to the man himself a little later in the show. That's right. So to get started, we're going to uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the origins of Flossed, which is the the Jed Ayers stories. And Jed was uh, nice enough to share those with us so we could read them and talk a little bit about those. Fuckload of Scotch Tape originally appeared in Out of the Gutter number five, and Mahogany and Monogamy appeared in Blood, Guts, and Whiskey. It's such a cool title. Yeah, based on the the, the titles of the publications that they appeared in, what type of story would you guess that this was going to be? If you just, I mean, just hearing about it like that. Um, just sounded like a good old-fashioned Saturday night to me. <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> any story from your past <laughs> yeah exactly now a reminder that uh for other folks uh, we're recording this on a saturday night so this is what we do this is how exciting our lives get right here so this podcast could be in out of the gutter number five that's correct all right <laughs> blood violence man violence but um at its heart you know a story about about people in in before we get into it i mean benji the focal point of fuckload of scotch tape is a guy who's made some bad choices and they're fairly realistic bad choices. I mean, you could see getting yourself involved in something like this, you know, if you're, if you have kind of a little bit of that down and out or maybe slight criminal kind of slant to you and he just keeps making bad choices. So it's not uh, not gratuitous violence or anything like that. It's just a guy trying to get it out of a bad situation. Yeah. And he's got that troubled past. Like, um, the whole setup is Benji kind of had a rough childhood, which led to him kind of moving along into minor crimes in, as a youth. And that's really what he knew. Didn't really go the, the education route or, you know, uh, legitimate jobs or anything like that. He was breaking into houses and stealing and drugs and that whole thing. So that's how he got kind of his start in life. And then, Moving along, he gets what seems like a really good opportunity, and obviously it doesn't go the way he was hoping. And uh, 
yeah, the rest of the story really is his recovery or attempted recovery from from what goes down. Some of the interesting things about um, Fuckload of Scotch Tape is uh, if you look at it a little deeper, it, he has a, a terrible childhood where, where his, you know, he doesn't get any type of affection from from his father and they have a terrible relationship. As I mentioned in an episode recently, which is the, the brunt of all stories involving parents, except for Phil <laughs> Jordan's, is that really piss poor parental child relationship. Um, but then he's basically taken advantage of by somebody who I at least felt, you know, he felt was another father figure. Yeah, and the guy, you could tell he was a predator. He preyed on that whole, like, absentee father situation to take advantage of, of someone naive. So a little more about the story. So Benji, um, you know, gets suckered into this this thing, and as uh, Rob put it very eloquently, he's kind of in, in his recovery mode, and then he's uh, taken advantage of again. And the thing that, I don't know if we want to get into overall themes yet, but, like, the thing that bought me into the story a little bit, you know, was there's at least the hope of redemption in him. So without going into too much detail, he ends up with a, a suitcase full of money because of something that he did for this. Uh, uh, the first guy that takes advantage of him, he gets a, a suit, a suitcase full of money from this dude for what he did for him, which he'll never spend because of what he had to do to get it. And so he feels like he lost his soul from doing what, what he did. And this suitcase now is like what he traded for his soul. So there's, there's this like maybe not hope for redemption, but like, you know, a wish that it could, could happen. And I thought that was probably one of my favorite parts of the story was that that existed in his mind. So the flip side of the fuckload of Scotch tape story um, is uh, is exactly that. Um, it kind of runs concurrently to most of, or the you know second two thirds, the latter two thirds of fuckload of Scotch tape. Um, in its story of this guy named Ethan, who is one of the the people that becomes a thorn in Benji's side. Yeah. So where we followed Benji as the main character in that one, Ethan's our focus in this one, and kind of the stuff that he's going through, having found. A suitcase full, of, or not a suitcase, a briefcase full of money, and what he does, and and this might just be my impression, but where we like Benji because he wants redemption, this dude's just kind of a scumbag, is how I felt about him. Like he's he's not as redeemable of a character. He's just kind of like a loser kind of dude taking advantage of a situation. Well, and that's exactly what I was going to say. Where Benji has been taken advantage of several times that that we learn about, you know, through through the course of of fuckload of Scotch tape. Ethan, on the other hand, his whole story is about taking advantage of other people. So, and yeah, that's how he comes across this money. And uh, the beauty of these stories is it was really interesting. I mean, I had no preconceptions of what I was going to read. Um, you know, when I picked them up, I'd seen the the trailer for the film, which didn't really give away a lot of the story. Um, so it was, it was really refreshing to open this up and go, hey, this is the guy from the other story. And hey, this is an event that happened in the other story. So I found it very interesting that Judd chose to write you know, the, the flip side of this coin and tell part of the same story, but in a very, very different voice, which I thought he did really well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear if he's got any kind of reason that he, I mean, obviously they're companion pieces, but I mean, they're published in different works, probably written at different times. So it would be interesting to hear from him, you know, if he had a reason that he, he went back to it. Well, you've got to wonder. I mean, you see authors, um, you know, revisit characters. Uh, Christopher Moore talked about it when we were in Milwaukee, you know, at, at his signing. And he was kind of like, yeah, there's some people I'd like to go back and talk some more about. So it's kind of interesting. I guess when you create something like that, you feel like, 
almost like you're responsible for them. And at times maybe you need to go back and tell a little more of their story. Yeah. I'm with it. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. The, one of the nicest things about it is seeing like filling in the gaps of, of what um, you didn't know or didn't see in the first story and, and realizing that, Oh, this part's coming up. I bet you this is going to be this. And then having it work out, you know, it, it was cool to see. That's what I liked about it. I think anytime you're seeing the flip side of a story can be very interesting. And most narratives, even within the same book, don't typically show you the other side of the same details. It kind of just flips back and forth. Mm-hmm. So like I said, this was a uh, very refreshing to read it this way. And plenty of references to uh, guns and roses songs and, <laughs> <laughs> That's all a Guns N' Roses ACDC. <laughs> all the shit I listened to when I was a teenager. I think that uh, Jed uh, and I may have had the same playlists uh, playing on the you know cassette player in the car when we were you know, 16, 17. They were called mixtapes back then, weren't they? Yeah, I think they were called mixtapes. Not playlists. Playlists didn't exist until much, much, much later. So, <laughs> um, You want to do some quotes? Yeah, I've got some quotes. The first one I want to throw out is something that um, I think, and Livius, you'll have to to confirm this or not, was um, made it to the film. And it's just, I love the way he stated this. Um, And it goes, he came to an understanding that he was a world-class shit, but found some facsimile of peace in it being a shit-class world and told himself he didn't give a fuck. Yeah, I like that a lot. Fairly certain that made it at least in some kind of way into the film, and I'm glad because that's that's a really good line. My first one, um, I guess, doesn't really need any setup. Uh, again, her mind just takes place in the 80s, so one of these words is going to stick out like a sore thumb here. He gave them as good a description as he could and a beeper number and took to carrying it with him. Though he intended never to use it, its silence in his pocket was a lullaby that he went to sleep to every night. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Do you know what a beeper is? Maybe you're a little younger oh, than man. I. Do you, do you remember beepers? Yes, I had I had them. I um I definitely had them back in the day when I was in high school when uh, when you were a drug dealer if you had a, a beeper. And yes. I was not a drug dealer, but I had it anyway. Do you have like one of the really really see my first one was really huge. I mean, this thing was uh guy was probably the size of an iPhone but maybe twice as thick. No, mine my first one was like the um we're talking like the mid nineties and it was um, like you just clipped it onto your belt and it was like, you had the one line at the one at the top. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I know what most, you're talking about. Yeah, most of it was just battery. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was my good old days of beepers. Um, can I hit you with a longer one? Absolutely. This is from mahogany and monogamy. And this is the, my, this is totally the mindset. Uh, it's, it's definitely the way Ethan thinks and everything. And, it was just kind of disturbing enough I had to throw it in here. He's talking about, uh, he goes to a strip club on a regular basis, and this is a description of one of the, the dancers. Uh, Little Debbie was starting to get the bulk of my business. I'm not sure if it was her looks or style or what. She had big bangs that were stiff if you touched them and favored very strong strawberry-scented perfume. It kind of smelled like she'd used a whole pack of chapstick on her crotch, and maybe she had, but I suspect the real appeal was her name. There was something kind of kinky sexy about thinking I was getting dry humped out of my money by a snack cake. Awesome stuff. I got another quick line, and this one I know was in the film, and this is the one that I, I think got the most like audible reaction. Quick line. Danger hung off me like 10 inches. And I, I swear, 
that was the one that I heard probably the most, I mean, aside from some of the more gruesome parts, that was probably the most audible reaction I got from the movie. That's just kind of a, it's kind of a badass line. Yes. Agreed. Um, this is also from mahogany and monogamy and, uh, it's Ethan's kind of talking about, he basically gets, uh, gets paid by this bartender to take drunks home. The, the long and the short of it. And then of course, as he carries people passed out into their homes, he you know, tries ripping them off. A couple of times there was a pissed off wife or mean ass dog waiting for me, but it was a safe bet. Anybody passing out at Carl's doesn't have much waiting for them at home. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that really kind of gave a feel for, you know, the kind of place Carl's was and the type of characters that, uh, you know, that inhabit this, this world that Mr. Ayers created. Yeah. And one of the most standout things in the mahogany monogamy, um, story for me was that Ethan was in the situation where like, he was kind of, uh, he was definitely excited, and and the way it was written, almost proud that he would have the uh, like the honor of being the guy who got twenty bucks to take these drunks home, like it was a step up in his world. I got I got another kind of long one. Mm-hmm. To me, this this quote really kind of exemplifies. And this is again from Mahogany and Monogamy, a dude who kind of knows that even though he thought things were going well, probably weren't. And the thing I like about it was how he just repeatedly says, could be, could be. Had I devoted some time in consideration of it, could be some things I'd have done differently. Could be I'd not have started smoking at eight years old. Could be I'd never have told that loudmouth Brian Belial about fingering Tanya Hopek behind the dumpster in junior high. Could be I'd not have stuck around St. Louis after stealing $50,000. Might have turned out I'd not been such a sticky kid, gotten my ass kicked every every day by Jeremy Hopek or into some serious shit with an opportunistic stripper. But I'll tell you what, nothing would have stopped me from smoking, fingering, or stealing in this first place. Very nice. I'm all out of quotes because Rob took two of mine. But that's okay. <sighs> you didn't say anything. No, it's cool. It's cool. I was going through them, and I'm like, I know I have some more in there. As I'm reading them, I also had the little Debbie <laughs> one and the 10 inches one. So they were kind of, uh, yeah. So, But yeah, I mean, there's just some some really great, some really great stuff in there, some great writing and, and none of it feels, you know, his characters don't, uh, you know, don't come off as like overbearing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's honest inner dialogue. I imagine it's honest inner dialogue since I'm a little less scumbag than, than some of his characters are. So <laughs> there was actually a really good, and this made it into the film too, when he was, um, that line about where mahogany and monogamy came from. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, it was a thing that he was reflecting that his father used to say to him, like the only thing that would, uh, like he, uh, the, his mom was the woman that would make him, you know, change. And it was this whole thing. And it was, uh, a really good line that made it in the film. I was happy because that's, that's solid writing. He was talking about when he first met my mother, he said he knew she was the one for him because she made him want to grow up and produce the previously impossible in his life, mahogany and monogamy. I thought it was just a nice rhymey thing to say till that night. Perfect. That was so good. And that's one of the things I like about the film. We'll probably talk about it in a little bit is like so much of like this rich writing and, and good dialogue and like just the gritty feel of it translates almost like word for word onto the film. Yeah. Lots of, uh, lots of good stuff to talk about and who better to talk about it with than, uh, than our first guest this evening, which is going to be uh, Jedediah Ayers. A little bit about Jed. Uh, he hosts the ongoing St. Louis Noir at the Bar event and co-edited slash contributed to the Noir at the Bar anthology, hosted the wrong kind of reading event at the Galway Arms during the AWP, and is the author of a bunch of stuff, including Fluck Load of Scotch Tape. 
All right, Jed, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us here on Booked. Yeah. Hey, thanks for thanks for hanging out with me and, and uh, having me on. It's fun. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your inspiration was for Fuckload of Scotch Tape and Mahogany and Monogamy? The first short story I ever wrote was called Politoburg, and uh, it, it was about this shanty town in Me- Mexico that's just populated entirely by uh, low-life criminals and, and, and whores. Uh, who, the whores work for a guy named Harlan Polito, and then the, the low-life criminals have done work for him, and he sends them there to lay low and uh, after they've, they've done something nefarious. So I just, I liked this, this location where it was just populated by terrible people and uh, really exploited people too. And um, I had a character in that piece uh, named Metcalf, who's, you know, he's kind of referred to as the retard uh, by the other characters. And uh, he was not the main character at all, but I, I started thinking about him. I was like, how did this guy, you know, he's not, he's not a badass and he's not, uh, doesn't seem particularly good at anything. How did he end up working for this guy, Polito, and getting sent here? And, you know, he must have had something else going on before. And, and I decided that to end up the way he was in Politoburg, it had to be something really awful. So basically I wrote Fuckload of Scotch Tape uh, thinking about him, thinking about, well, what's just the worst thing I can think uh, to have this guy messed up with? And um, so I started it writing a story about a guy who uh, is part of a gang that kidnaps a kid and then he has to sit with the kid and then and he finds out that uh, even though the ransom was paid that the kid was killed and he's been fucked over by his by his gang and, and that's just a c- continuing thing with him. Going back to the Politoburg story, uh, there was a, a guy there that I mentioned he sort of thinks of as a father figure and uh, and when that guy gets killed, his character spirals out of control. And so I, I, I came back to that father, father thing a lot with him. That every father figure he's ever had is from his literal father to uh, anybody he's latched onto is just, just done absolutely the worst thing to him they could. And uh, and then mahogany and monogamy, uh, which is a parallel story that Benji's in, but, um, but he's not, uh, not the main character. I, I think I was just trying to figure out the other side of, of Benji's, um, what was going on with him. Cause it, he, he didn't know what was going on. He was trying to figure out the whole mess he gets into and fuck load of scotch tape. And, uh, and so I wrote the other side, uh, from another character's point of view. And I, and he doesn't know what's going on either. And you find out, um, He's got a little bit better idea, but if you read both pieces, you find out that neither one of them, neither one of them, know what's going on. They're both acting on bad impulses and bad, uh, bad information. So they were published separately, and I didn't tell anybody that they were related. In fact, in Politoburg, the character is just called Metcalf, and then in Mahogany and Monogamy, he's called uh, Benji. Or, I'm sorry, in Fuckload of Scotch Tape, he's called Benji. One of them he's called Benji, and the other <laughs> he's called Benji Metcalf. So you wouldn't understand that, uh, that the 
characters the same, unless you were paying way too much attention to the stories. <laughs> so there you go. Nice thing about the two and how they kind of run together, uh, or they run kind of like parallel, like you said, is that uh, in one you got Benji who's um, being taken advantage of, and then the other one you've got the main character is essentially taking advantage of a situation, but they still kind yeah. of get in all these messed up situations. So that's kind of a nice um, contrast, I guess, between the two. Yeah, Benji's just got victim written all over him. You know, he, he, he brings he brings a lot on himself, but uh, but yeah, he's never <laughs> ever had a break. You, you've had your stories adapted into film, I guess, a couple different times now. So, uh, how, how is it difficult to to, take, to trust someone with something that you've created, or um, is it kind of exciting to to see what it's going to look like in a new medium, or kind of both? Yeah, it's it's kind of both. I, you know, my first experience with film was a, um, a screenplay I wrote called Mosquito Kingdom that was produced as a really really low budget low low everything uh film uh and my <laughs> god i think you could i think you could take my script my original script and reshoot it and have no idea that it would you know the two movies you get came from the same material but on the other hand that you know that I'm, I'm really proud of of that film that it got made that i put a lot of work into it and it's not particularly good, but it's, you know, my hope was just that the next one would be better. And so um, when Julian contacted me about his interest in Fuck With a Scotch Tape, he sent me some uh, short films that he had made. You know, I looked him up on IMDb and I saw he's, hey, a guy who worked with, you know, Shannon Tweed and Stephen Gutenberg and uh, uh, <laughs> Jeff Wincott, you know, he's hey, okay in my book. But he sent me a, a disc of short films. You know, he'd been doing this stuff for hire, but he, he sent me some, some personal films, some short films. And I just saw a lot of imagination and vision in there that was turning his uh, budgetary limitations into virtues, creating some really interesting atmosphere and things like that. And, and I, I felt really comfortable handing it over to him. You know, a year and a half after we'd uh, signed papers. He, you know, told me it was going to be a musical, and I, you know, it was too late at that point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, it's been a lot of fun seeing what, uh, seeing what he, he does with it. And, and Kevin Quain, whose music he used for it, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty interested in Kevin Quain now. He's, he, he's a hell of a songwriter. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's been a lot of, you know, I, I was a little trepidatious after after my experience with uh, Mosquito Kingdom, but um, just talking with Julian and and uh, and having the short stories. You know, when it's your screenplay and it says written by Jedediah Ayers and the open credits, I cringe uh, because I, you know the act, lines coming out of the actor's mouth. My like, God, I didn't write that. But uh, but if it says based on stories by. Okay, I can live with that. <laughs> you can distance yeah, they, yourself if you need to. <laughs> I can absolutely, you know, and I, I can say that uh, that the movie, Fuck Little Scotch Tape, um, really is, it's Julian's thing. I mean, that movie wouldn't be that movie without Kevin's music and without um, Julian's style, which is a lot different than my, you know, I mean, I don't think anything in there really looks 
like I pictured it, writing the story, and, and probably not the way it sounds uh, to readers, but, you know, it's he's got a hell of a lot of style, that, and, and I'm, I really enjoy watching his take on it. I've always got my stories, and they can't be touched. Uh, you know, they're already already published, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to let somebody as talented and visionary as, as Julian play around with it. And so we talked a little bit about the, the musical aspect of it. Um, how do you feel about the way he was able to merge the two stories into one narrative? You know, that's um, pretty amazing to me that he could do that. I mean, as the creator, I, I probably couldn't get enough distance from the material to to pick things out like that. Like, in my mind, there's a big plot point in the two stories regarding a mustache that uh, I, I don't know how he looked at those stories and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take out this whole mustache thing and <laughs> make the character, you know, make the two characters one and it's going to work. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have imagined. And, and the whole, I'd say, you know, end of the film is, is all he wrote it himself. That's, you know, none of that stuff is, is mine. So, uh, I'm I'm impressed with what he was able to pull off. Uh, I don't think I could have, like I said, got the distance to uh, to do that. But uh, you know, when he was he was writing the script, he asked if I had any kind of. He was asking for insights into Benji's character and, and things like that, and what happened. I said, well, you know, I've got these other stories that have him in it, and you're welcome to read them. And, and so I sent him Politoberg, and I sent him uh, Mahogany and Monogamy, and he he wrote back and said, oh, this you know. Mahogany and monogamy really helps. Can I use any of that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I didn't know he was gonna he was gonna start attributing Ethan's characteristics to Benji. But you know, and I saw an early version of the script where he'd done that, and I was able to say, you know, give a little bit of direction about you know the difference in their motivations and things like that. But uh, I think he did he did a pretty remarkable job blending them so aside from uh the fuckload of scotch tape and mahogany monogamy you recently had someone uh, adapt your story of viscosity to film how was that uh, any different than uh your experience with uh this well viscosity uh, which uh, paul von stetzel adapted and did a fine job i suppose you guys can put a link to the on the like the youtube it's up on youtube that story is totally like I don't know if anybody read it, but it was an exercise. I, I literally I think I wrote it in about an hour. <laughs> it was um, it was just uh, the prose piece was all dialogue and unattributed dialogue, and I just I wrote it as an exercise to see if I could write a, a story somebody could follow that's nothing but dialogue between more than two characters and it's unattributed and i and you know this really sick story about <laughs> misadventures with masturbation uh came out of you know unfortunately uh experience and <laughs> everything in there is is something that uh i have firsthand experience with or uh or secondhand or 
somebody I know does. Or somebody so, else's hand. Somebody else's <laughs> hand. That, that's not masturbation, is it? But um, uh, anyway, Paul had been circling a novel, an unpublished novel that I have, um, and he was interested in, in working on that as a, as a feature project. And I was reluctant to sell it to, well, I wouldn't be reluctant to sell it to him. I'd be, I was reluctant to give it to him at that point because I was trying to sell it and uh, get it published. But I said, you know what, why don't you take a look at some short stories and, and um, if you're interested, you know, we can, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable just letting you go with one of those. And I handed him, I gave him viscosity, just said, look, this is, essentially a script it's nothing but dialogue so you know take it and and run with it and he he did and so you know it was most of the lines in in viscosity come straight from from my story but uh you know the guys don't necessarily look the way i pictured them in my mind but i never described them in the story and i never described where they were and i you know so it's it's a much smaller piece than uh than the two uh, parallel stories that Julian took on, so I, I'm really happy with Paul's Paul's film, um, and I, I hope it really opens some doors for him because he's he's really talented. What he put into that, uh, you know, how he put that together is it's a lot classier than than anything I, I would have done. I actually thought about doing it myself, but um, it would have looked pretty shitty next to his. So I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, my. Uh... The thing that I thought was interesting about it is like you couldn't look at really two more different films almost because like you said it's very much just a dialogue piece around one thing versus this kind of epic musical about all these different like very deep threads of you know betrayal and father issues and stuff like that so it's like <laughs> they they're almost like exact opposites and one's just almost not anecdotal but it's you know it's in that vein as as opposed to this kind of gigantic really the crazy the main vein the main gigantic vein <laughs> exactly so yeah it's cool to kind of see those in contrast to each other you know it's funny too that because both uh both Fuckload of scotch tape and um viscosity appeared in the same magazine not the same issue but they were both in out of the gutter magazine which uh Matthew Lewis uh, hopefully continues producing. He's he put out uh, seven issues of a really great print rag um, that had a it's had a lot of great people in there. But um, they were always they were themed uh, issues, and uh, and I was aware of them for a little while and was kind of waiting around for a. Uh, waiting around for I had these stories written. And I was waiting around for. A theme that I thought fit something I had, and and uh, the theme for issue number five was revenge. And I looked at what I had, and, and I sent fuckload of scotch tape to him uh, for that. I thought that's kind of as close to a revenge story as I've got right now. And then you know I so I, I knew him through that, and as soon as uh, he announced the theme for number six, it was sexploitation. And I had never planned on publishing Viscosity. <laughs> but I thought, well, that just seems like an invitation. Uh, you know, if there's ever anywhere that this piece is going to fit, it's probably there. So, <laughs> so that's funny. I've had, you know, 
stuff published elsewhere. Uh, but everything I've had published in Out of the Gutter has been uh, has been turned to film. So. Film worthy. Yeah. All right. So, what are you currently working on? Um, I owe Cameron Ashley and the good folks at Crime Factory Books, uh, which is different than Crime Factory, the the electronic magazine, which is top notch. But they they are branching into books, and um, and they are going to publish a. Uh, uh, they're calling it a novella. It's really like three linked uh, short stories of mine. But uh, I'm working on that. I'm hopefully finishing that up in the next week or so. And uh, and then I, I I owe lots of people stuff. <laughs> And they're they're just gonna have to wait. Well, there you go. Now they know they'll have to wait. (laughs) Now they know. Now they know. I got you know last year, uh, Scott Phillips, my screenwriting partner, and I, um, who we also host an event called Noir at the Bar, that you are familiar with. But uh, we published a book uh, of short stories uh, featuring people who'd read at our event uh, last year, and this this summer uh, we're publishing volume two of noir at the bar and so i'm kind of uh up to my chin in that right now but um hopefully that'll be ready to go real soon and uh have it by the end of the summer or early in the fall so that that's taking up all my time right now and uh yeah definitely looking forward to uh to all that really especially you know the, the noir at the bar anthology and Having heard and seen the people that are reading in there, it's uh, it's exciting stuff. Yeah, no, we're um, the event you were at. Of course, everybody from there is gonna uh, gonna be uh, Caleb Ross's. I, I I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it. Lip Lipidopterist. Lipidopterist. Yeah, he's that that piece is gonna be in there. And uh, Gordon Gordon has sent me I think two or three pieces. Uh, he, he kind of keeps going back and forth on on which one he wants in there, uh, and then Kevin Helmick and um, uh, yeah, I haven't got Mark's piece yet, but uh, but anyway, everybody everybody from there ought to have ought to have something in there. Cool. Well, we want to thank you for coming on and talking a little bit about Flossed. It was uh, and and thanks for inviting us to go see it with you. It was, uh, yeah. it was definitely a great time. Well, I needed you know I needed to look like I had an entourage or something <laughs> you arrived in style i will say <laughs> you were my chauffeur i appreciate it <laughs> all right yeah definitely thanks again and um congratulations on having uh, such a cool arty flick adapted from something that you created yeah thanks and you know i guess you're going to talk to julian thank him for me and uh um, I, I hope everybody gets a chance to see it Okay, so up until now, it's been regular old-fashioned book podcast. Here's where it gets weird, where we are going to actually kind of try and talk about and review a movie. So uh, <laughs> if you didn't catch at the top of the show, we will be reviewing Flossed, which is a Julian Grant production. Um, Julian had invited um, Jed as the author of the original stories out to see the um, the cast and friends screening. And, uh, you know, because we're, you know, we're so beloved by Jed Ayers, he invited us 
to go to the screening. So uh, that was a very cool. It took place at Columbia College um, just this past Tuesday, um, May 29th. And uh, yeah, I got to tell you, I, you know, you think film screening and you think about what's going to be. And then you know, I see it's at Columbia College where I attended for a little while, you know, 20-ish years ago. And I thought, yeah, this could be kind of a small room or, or something. But this was like a really nice theater we were in. Yeah, it was um... – I don't know if it's just the best best theater that they have, but it was a nice like, uh, you know, couple hundred seats, big, you know, full screen, full size screen. It was nice. Yeah, I've been in much crappier theaters where I paid you know ten bucks to see a film. Exactly. Yeah. So a um, little bit about the way that Livius and I went into this because I think this kind of matters. Livius had read um, Jed's two stories, Mahogany, Monogamy, and Fuckload of Scotch Tape before seeing the film, so he already had this vision from the stories in his mind, whereas I uh, waited to read the stories until after we saw the film. So my first impression of these stories was the film itself, which I think kind of had an impact on um, the, you know, the way we might see things differently, so that might come up while we're talking about it. So... Um... The biggest difference, um, which, again, was, as Rob just said, much more noticeable to me having come off of reading the stories, you know, 24, 36 hours before before the movie was that in order to make this narrative, you know, one person, these two stories that we've talked about of Benji and Ethan were combined into one character. So there is an actual Ethan in the story, but he plays a very minor part in the bulk of these two stories are all Benji. Yeah. So it was as if he took the one interaction between Benji and Ethan and turn that into the Ethan character. Um, like the one kind of conflict they had between each other and then everything else was just translated into the Benji character. So we've kind of talked about the stories themselves. So now we're going to take our, uh, take our shot at talking film. Um, it was a super professional production, which isn't, I don't want to say it's not what I expect. I didn't know what to expect, but I was really uh, blown away at, at how professionally this was done. Yeah, first thing that I want to say is thinking, hearing that um, a, a, it was a film adaptation of a couple of Judd's short stories, I'm thinking short film. I mean, up until like the day we went to see it, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be half hour, maybe 40 minutes, you know, if it's a big deal. Um, no, this was like a feature length, I mean, 86 minutes or something like that. It was a, it was a full-on feature length uh, film and definitely an art film. Like it was, we were talking with Julian and everything, you know, um, it's got a very artistic feel and it leans more into like meaning and expression and stuff than you would find in like a typical Hollywood movie. At, at least that's what I think. Now let's, uh, we talk a little bit about the, uh, the elephant in the room. <laughs> so we were told, and I'd, I'd read this on Jed's blog and, you know, we we're kind of talking about it, um, en route to the movie. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's part musical. <laughs> That's right. Yes, it is. So, um, you know, man, talk about not knowing what to expect when you hear that. So especially cause I'd read the stories and I was like, I just don't see where all the singing and dancing is going to come into this, you know, is, is my thought having read these. What did you think about that hearing that, uh, that it's kind of a film slash musical? Yeah. I think for me, I don't know. Uh, it may have been easier to digest again because I hadn't read the stories and I didn't have a preconceived notion, but I mean, I had seen the trailer going in. There was definitely like, I mean, there's like a two or three minute trailer. So I, I knew what the film was going to feel like and it was very gritty and very dark and everything. 
I didn't get a musical feel off of it, but um, yeah, I guess uh, Julian had found Kevin Quain is the name of the guy who did all the music and that that's in the film and and it's surprising how well his music fits with the feel of the of the movie and yeah, it works it worked remarkably well. I, I was surprised. Oddly enough, one of the things that came up is the music wasn't written for the film. This was pre-existing music. Yeah, exactly. Which, makes even, which is, makes it even more. I'm just thinking when people are listening to us talk about, oh, the music fit well with the film. You think, well, you should, you know, if you're putting it together. But no, this just happened to be another artist's conception of, you know, of something that, that matched really well. Yeah, it was nice. It was it was woven through nicely, too. So, um, you know, there'd be, you know, regular scene and, and things would happen and everything. And then. Yeah, just certain spots were just him, I guess you could say lip syncing the music or whatever, but it was as if he was singing these songs as his expression of what he's feeling for these different moments. And and um, for the most part, it worked. I think that I was happy with the way it turned out. Um, it could have been cheesier. It could have been like, you know, just less necessary, but it worked. I mean, I think my biggest objection with the music part of it was that some scenes might have been you know, shorter might have been nicer, but otherwise, um, as far as thematically, it fit perfectly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I joked and said, you know, music and dancing, there certainly was no dancing. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, and the music was, uh, it, it was inner dialogue for, for Benji, for the, you know, the protagonist in it. And I, I think it fit really well. It was very somber, not terribly upbeat or, or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was very surprising, um, how well, uh, Kevin Quayne's stuff worked with with this film um, again, knowing that you know it kind of got mashed together. It wasn't created for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a testament to Julian Grant um, for kind of finding those and seeing how they could work together. All right, so now for uh, for the visual aspect of it, um, man, Benji is bloody a lot in this thing. <laughs> yeah, he's like the prettiest boy ever. Like he's uh, he's this muscular kid who looks like he's you know. He should be in a in a Twilight movie. Um, he's totally a pretty boy, but he, yeah, gets into some messy situations. He's yeah, he's bloody and beat up a lot. And actually, the namesake of of the story, Fuckload of Scotch Tape, is he gets uh, beat up pretty bad in a in a gay bar and uh, kind of like <laughs> his his ghetto rigged uh, cast for his his broken arm is is just tape that's just continuously wrapped around his arm yeah i thought it was great that uh <laughs> that was through, throughout the whole you know he's basically wearing that throughout the the majority of the film yep it's in the in the original stories he does lose it and because he had it in there or loses the tape and mm-hmm. because he had it in there so long he kind of has this misshapen arm so i'm guessing that was probably uh just an ease of use thing instead of providing a misshapen arm to have him you know to compact that story time wise to have him still in this cast made out of packing tape Again, visually, one thing I want to say is, um, you know, this is definitely a low-budget film. So Julian made use of what he had around him. And, you know, being, I guess, being a professor at a university kind of helps because you have access, obviously, to, um, you know, certain things. But he did he, he made good use of, of like, the local, local urban kind of atmosphere. There was um, some scenes shot, and this was... <laughs> made the movie a little nicer for me is that there were some scenes shot in clubs there. There's a club called exit on North Avenue in Chicago. And, um, I spent a good amount of my twenties, you know, the weekends hanging out at exit and it's this, um, 
it's a weird building. At the bottom floor is a biker bar that um, has porn playing on the screens above the bar like the whole time it's open. And if you go upstairs, it's kind of like this. It, well, when I was going there, it was like this kind of electro industrial kind of club where, um, you know, just heavy like industrial music would play. And there's like a chain link fence around the, the dance floor. And um, yeah, it, it's just a really heavy kind of dark Gothic feel to it. So um, a lot of great atmosphere that really lended to that kind of beat down gritty feel he was going for. I'm surprised to hear that place was still open. Oh, yeah. Going strong. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it's very violent, very bloody, but not, um, you know, not gratuitously. So I think it was all very important to the film. Um, and, and I don't know if some of that I mean, I didn't picture the stories reading them being quite as bloody. That makes sense. Mm hmm. But I think that in the film, it was almost needed to kind of set a, a, a feel that you can't set without the written word. Yeah, he definitely he, he wasn't he wasn't hinting at a feel. He just told you basically by the way it was filmed, how you're supposed to feel about this. Everything was really it was either really violent or really frightening or really sad or really tragic. He, he definitely was strong with the feelings he was he was putting across. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, now, stylistically, it doesn't look like a film that was put together for like a few thousand dollars or anything. It's like it's professional quality. And, and, and well, I mean, I don't know the first thing about films, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks like professionally produced film because it is because he's got these decades of experience in Hollywood and everything. What I thought was a good flavor uh, uh, to to the scenes and to the way the film was put together was there'd be these weird it looked almost like uh, old like home movies or something like as if it was running through a projector like the jumps and the and the squiggly lines running through it and stuff like that for certain scenes you know other scenes like there was like a like a side by side two different you know two different shots going at the same time with different like color effects on them and stuff so it was definitely like there's some artistic departures from just your regular you know looking at a screen yeah, absolutely. And um, just before we, we get too far into getting away from talking about Benji, um, Graham Jenkins is the the young man that portrayed Benji. And, you know, this kid was on screen, had to be 85% of that film. I mean, and he, mm -hmm. I think he's really the one who brought it home, just how, you know, disgruntled he could look or how passionate he could look about something. You know, I mean, these, these are a lot of close-ups on this kid's face while he's trying to mouth lyrics to a song that he's not singing. You know, I mean, he just, he really pulled it off and, and, and brought it together very well. And I don't, you know, I can't say it's like the what if, you know, what if, uh, you know, Harrison Ford didn't play Han Solo thing, you know, but I, I mean, I don't know that it would have been as good without this kid playing, uh, playing Benji. Yeah, I agree. He nailed it. And, um, you know, as much as he did a good job emoting when he needed to emote, there was a lot of times where he just needed to just be deadpan, like a straight face, like mm -hmm. dead look in his eyes. I have to imagine that's pretty tough to pull off when you're trying, when you know that you're, when you're being filmed for a scene to just look like nothing. But he did a good job of looking like nothing too, which I thought was, at least to me, not being an actor, seems like it would probably be the most challenging thing. Well, yeah, and you have to think he's obviously a very, a very young actor, um, mm -hmm. you know, so it's not like he has you know, decades of experience behind him. And most actors, I mean, when you watch a, a you know, you watch a sitcom or a TV show or a movie, the, they're never looking into the camera. Or it's very, very rare, you know, that they're staring dead into a camera unless you're a news anchor or something. So that's got to be a little 
unnerving too, knowing that not only are people going to be watching you in your performance, but that they're going to be looking like right into your eyes the whole time. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not an actor either. So what do I know? But yeah, that seemed like, like it would take a little more, uh, a little more courage, a little more, you know, whatever it is that makes actors great than, than, you know, just, just the average actor. Whatever makes actors great. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> the, the actor moxie. I, I have no idea. Actor points. Exactly. There, <laughs> that requires more talent. There you go. That's what it's called. <laughs> so the only other thing I really want to say about this film is that it was, uh, even though the stories were merged together and, and this is where, like I said, you know, my first look at it was a little different than yours. Um, one of the things that brought it together very well is how much of the narrative was called directly from from Jed's stories and how true um, Julian Grant, you know, tried to stay to the stories, even though he had to make this huge shift in perspective. And I shouldn't say shift. He had to unshift a perspective, basically, to, to pull this thing together. But um, you can tell at the heart how much he wanted to, to keep it as, as honest and original as he could just by how much of the dialogue and narrative dialogue mostly was, was kept in this, in this film. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> based on what we've told you, it sounds like dude took big liberties with the stories. And I guess in a way, technically he did, but he did it in a way where you don't, you don't think to yourself, dude took a lot of liberties because like, yeah, it is just, it's the stories that Jed told, but you know, a little different. So yeah, I got to give him props for that. Um, if anybody was going to <laughs> make any changes, I think Julian did like, he had those stories in his heart. You could tell. And it was one of those things that he said when we were there talking to him, you know, before and after the film, but also, you know, maybe when we have him on in a bit, I'm sure he'll probably talk to that a little bit himself, but like he did this film because, you know, he cared about these stories that he read. And so it's definitely very obvious in the way that the story, the, the film turned out. All right. So here's, here's something we've never had to do before. You want to, you want to give this movie a wrap up and a rating? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't even know how to approach this, but I'll give it a shot. I'm probably gonna be really... candy, candy rating. No, no, no. Okay. If we, if we start down the road of doing candy <laughs> ratings, you know, our podcast is just going to end. <laughs> so, Um, I don't know what typical, I'm just going to stick with the five-star rating because that's what our listeners know. I'll say, uh, yeah, the, the film was very faithful to Jed's stories, which were very good. The story was not just a, a dirty, crimey flick. I mean, it had good moments of, of emotional impact and everything. You had the whole, you know, Benji's not selling, spending that money because it's the surrogate for his soul, which he lost when he did this bad thing. All that really carries over very well. And yeah, I mean, like you can tell he's trying for some kind of redemption, even though he more or less knows it's not really possible. And the musical part worked well. I was, I wasn't sure about it, but it worked well. And it was a, it was a cool flick that told a really cool story and, and, um, definitely an art flick. Um, which shouldn't be judged by standard Hollywood, you know, standards because it's not, that's not what it wants to be. It wants to be an artistic story that tells, you know, a powerful tale. And I think it does that. So I'm going to do my first, <laughs> this is so weird. My first movie rating, I'm going to give this, uh, um, <laughs> I'm waffling on this four and a half stars, but it's not going to be hard to follow up. 
yeah, I you know I echo what you say. It's it was um, it was done very well. Um, you know, Hollywood standards being what they are. You know, when you consider it, this is done on a shoestring budget and is uh, one of the interesting things that that Julian said when we were talking to him was, you know, hey, I, I can work with pretty much anybody. I've got three questions for him. It's can you give up a weekend? Can you provide your own wardrobe and can we shoot at your place? And I think that well, I, I just think that speaks volumes for, you know, like guerrilla filmmaking. You know, this is this is not big sets where we go, oh, you know what? We don't like this set. So let's just erect another set that's going to work for this scene. It's, you know, he had to go into I'm assuming he had to go into the exit and say, hey, can we come in here at three in the morning or you know six in the morning on a Sunday morning and shoot for three hours, you know, for this film or, or whatever he had to do. So um, but the talent was certainly there from a, from a translation perspective from the story to the film. I think he picked great actors. Um, Graham Jenkins was absolutely fantastic as Benji, um, even though he may not have been what uh, what Jed envisioned as a Benji, you know, from his description and stuff in the stories. I think he did a great job. Um, and you know what? I'll be honest. I, I've watched some other art films, so I'm just going to grade them against some of the crap I've tried to watch, like the stuff Lars von Trier does. And, and I have to say, <laughs> comparatively speaking, this is a five-star film. Bam. There it is. So here's a here's a, a quick bio about Julian Grant. We've talked about it a little bit, but here's something a little more uh, specific to his career. Um, he graduated from York University in 1985 with a BFA in film production uh, through the late 80s and early 90s. He dedicated himself to independent production, learning the ropes of distribution, and made his first feature film, Bust a Move. He later worked with Lionsgate and HBO and was the producer-director of the acclaimed miniseries RoboCop Prime Directives. Uh, he is currently a full-time faculty member at Columbia College in Chicago, and he also taught uh, previously at the Canadian Film Center and Sheridan College and a host of other educational venues. Today, he is an active working artist and professional educator, passing on his no-holds-barred production philosophies and continuing to live the dream. He makes cinema for himself now and is an evangelist for DIY and self-distribution in the new digital age. Julian, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us here at Booked. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, again, uh, great opportunity. All right, so to get started out, um, I guess the, the best question, the easiest question would be, how did you come to find Jed's stories? Well, uh, you know, when I moved to Chicago, the first thing I did is I started to look at the local bookshop, Quimby's, which is a mm. big friend to alt press and small press. And uh, I hit upon uh, Out of the Gutter. And any fan of, you know, Thug Lit and Short Noir or Neo Noir fiction should be aware of them. Uh, and that's where I came across Jed's work. Uh, I started chatting with Matt, who edits that mag, uh, or book, I should say. And, uh, you know, I picked up a couple of short stories because uh, I wanted to do some short films when I first moved to town to kind of introduce myself and came across Jed's work. And it just, you know, sort of kicked me right in the eyes. And I went, wow, this, this you know, this shit is, is, is real. Uh, and so I reached out to him and kind of we went from there. What's the hardest thing about adapting someone else's story versus kind of, you know, writing it your own? Oh, the hardest thing about adapting somebody else's story is getting the tone right. Uh, because film noir and, you know, mystery by and large has an active first person narrator, you realize that eliminating that voice is probably going to be 
a big mistake. Um, you know, and, and you, you know, you hear a lot of crap in the film world where it's like, oh, you know, you can't have uh, an omnipotent first-person narrator. It's going to ruin the cinematic dramatic thrust. And I'm like, well, bullshit on that. Uh, you know, I, I think Jed's voice speaking through Benji and fuckload of Scotch tape it truly is the, the the tone of the picture. And I wanted to make sure I could I, I could keep that alive, and, and and that meant really keeping Jed's dialogue alive uh, when it came to adapting the picture. So, how much would you say you consulted with Jed in the process of uh, of either filming or just you know starting with the the, the script for it? Actually, you know, Jed was really cool about it. I mean, you know, uh, we ended up chatting a bit, you know, thanks to Matt over at Out of the Gutter. Uh, and I sent him some of the short films I'd made here and my, my resume. I, you know, I made a lot of Hollywood-style movies over the years. And now in my latest incarnation as a college prof over at Columbia College, uh, Chicago, uh, I had returned to my filmmaking roots. And so I, I sent Jed a couple of my new shorts, uh, one called Maidenhead, another one called Screw the Pepperoni, uh, which was this really nice sort of uh, uh, didactic poetry piece by a guy called Bruce uh, Sterling. It was really cool. Uh, and Jed saw him and, and dug him and said, well, shit, man, you want to you know, make a picture out of my story? Go ahead. And that was about it. Uh, it was just total love from day one. And so, you know, I play well with others, but I tend to write by myself, I, I guess, as we all do. And so I went off and I wrote a draft. Uh, but what I had in mind was something that Jed had never, ever anticipated. And that was taking his world and making it into a musical. And so when I dropped that bomb on him, once the first draft was done, and I sent it over to him for, uh, for an eyeball on it, he was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> uh, and it was cool because it was a peanut butter and chocolate moment, you know, where he goes, holy shit. And I sent him some of the music and he's like, this totally works. I had no idea that this music existed. Um, a friend of mine in Canada, Kevin Quain, uh, and i got to give a shout-out to him, of course, uh, is just this incredible uh, lounge-performing maestro genius. And his body of work is phenomenal. And, you know, I really, as I started to look at Jed's world and Kevin's music, thought that it would be the ultimate Marvel super team mashup film noir musical opportunity of a lifetime. <laughs> and, and, and that's how fuckload of scotch tape, the all singing, all bleeding musical came to be. We talked at length about um, both the separate stories and then kind of the merger of the stories into fuckload of scotch tape, the film. Um, how did you come to the decision to, to merge the Benji and Ethan stories into a story that's strictly about Benji? I, I think again it goes back to tone. I also liberated a chunk of you know stuff from another picture from Jed uh, and oh God, memory fades me right now. Oh yeah, mahogany and monogamy, mm -hmm. which is Benji's sort of you know renegade years in Mexico or South America. And I really again, you know, the, the old stories are true, right? I mean, if you want the book or the story to remain true, well, leave it up on the shelf because that's where it's always going to be in its purest most undiluted form. Um, and, and filmmaking is an entirely different animal. Um, first of all, you've got length to contend with. Um, I wanted the picture to come in just shy of 90 minutes because I think film noir plays best fast. Uh, and, you know, I also wanted to have enough material so that it didn't feel like I was padding. And so 
by taking Ethan's story, which told us a little bit about what was going on with Benji anyway, mm-hmm. and taking the original fuckload and then marrying a little bit of mahogany in there, uh, it pretty much well evened out. Uh, so, I mean, that's the one thing about Jed. I mean, Jed is one of those, you know, really just, you know, dirt working writers. And I mean that with all the love in the world. Uh, I was just going through Note Noir at the bar. Uh, he gifted me a copy last week, you know, and I was just like, holy shit, like the stuff in here is great, but Jed's piece in that just stands out. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's fun for me because with Jed's work, it was pretty much well an ABC because his tone um, and his voice is so strong uh, that marrying two or even three parts of his stories together pretty much well for me was like hip bone connects to the knee bone, knee bone connects to the foot bone. I mean, he's that good. (laughs) And what you're just saying really reminded me of one of the things that I liked now having both seen the film and read the stories is that like, like you said, Jed's got a really cool, like a really good voice and everything. And, and you found a way to like drop those really beautiful things in. And and you, you were very faithful to like the dialogue and, and some of like the, you know, the, the, the narration of the story and, it plays out really well, I guess, in both mediums. Well, I mean, and thanks, man. I mean, you know, the, you know, the fact is, you don't, you don't fuck with, you know, like Coke, right? <laughs> I mean, every time you fuck with Coke and you get the new Coke formula, it ends up crappy. So <laughs> I, I think it's best to go with the all original stuff because uh, that's what fans are plugged into anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the biggest mistake any filmmaker or any artist adapting another person's work can do is, you know, start sticking their grubby mitts all over it in some, you know, crazed sense of ownership. Uh, I mean, I came up with some stuff that Jed laughed his ass off about, you know, some particularly vicious turns of events, uh, which ended up okay. Um, And so that made me happy that he goes, oh, man, that was some really sick shit. Thank you for that. That was great. And I was like, well, good. I'm glad you're happy, buddy, because, you know, it's kind of like a geek contest now, isn't it? It's like, who's going to bite the head off the next chicken? Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that um, Jed mentioned. We just talked to him was how, um, you know, even though it's adapted from, you know, his work and everything, it's so obviously your story too. And I think, yeah, you guys just, it's like a very good marriage of like the two, um, you know, artistic takes on the stories. I mean, it's all R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? Uh, (laughs) You've got to, you know, give the love. And I'm not just being, you know, a dick here when I talk about this. I mean, it's, if you're lucky enough, you'll meet people that, you know, share the same shit that you do that dig the same movies, that read the same comics, you know, that that have spent time in the same bars. And so when you start telling stories together, it's like give and take kind of rock and roll, Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street kind of vibe, uh, where, you know, one's playing rhythm, one's playing lead, and you can kind of bounce back and forth. Uh, You know, and those are the friendships and the working relationships that you truly treasure. For sure. Now, um... On to kind of mechanics a little bit. Yeah. Um, we we know this from talking to you. We wouldn't really maybe notice from the what the end product is, which I thought was fantastic, but you worked on a, on a small budget. How was that for you? Oh, fine. You know, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, under the guise of cinema, you know, you got two camps, right? You've got the movie side, which is all about the Benjamins. It's maximum bums on seats. It's the AMC on a Saturday night. And with that, you got cash. And you got cash, which comes from OPM, other people's money. So whether it's studios, distributors, or your local, you know, crack dealer, 
those are the people you're responsible, you know, for ROI. And I spent 20 years, you know, working that world. And, you know, it's your basic friggin' McMovie market. Um, and all you have to do is look at the landscape of America pictures, you know, that are released theatrically, and you see it all the time. Now, on the film side, however, it's all about love. It's all about doing it for the very fact that you have to do it. Because if you don't do it, you'll probably go out of your nut or, you know, go postal somewhere. And so you make it with whatever money you have. I mean, my film students that are dedicated, that are dyed-in-the-wool film festival fanatics, I'm like, sell a kidney, sell a car. You know, cash in those bar mitzvah bonds. Because you got <laughs> the disease, man. And now it's time to start feeding that disease. Um, so, yeah, fuckload. I mean, we made on the money that was in my pocket. Uh, and so I would pay for gas, I would pay for food, and that was about it. Uh, I cut a deal with SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, um, as needed, you know, to get my actors uh, under their, uh, you know, basically ultra-low budget agreement. Uh, but, you know, this is a filmmaking town and mecca here in Chicago now, mm -hmm. and there's an awful lot of actors that are more than happy to give up their weekends you know, to make, uh, you know, a picture with a guy like me. It's kind of um, interesting and, and kind of a, as a follow-up question, and I guess it takes a lot of preempting here. And we're looking at two people who are telling stories. So Jed can sit in his, uh, in his library, in his kitchen at home, and he can bang out a story, and he could have Benji move a mountain if he wanted to because there's sure. no cost to him adding <laughs> something just really extraneous to, you know, to, to the script. So uh, do you find yourself when you're making films having to cut out due to budget, or is it so in the back of your mind that when you're writing out the script or adapting it from something else or working on your own creation, do you kind of just put it out of your mind ahead of time because you know there are some challenges or hurdles you can't climb due to budgetary issues? Well, you know, that, that's a really good question. I mean, ultimately, it boils down to cart and horse, doesn't it? You know, you can create an elaborate cart, i.e. film or movie, but, you know, where the hell are you going to get the horses to pull it? Um, conversely, I, I'm more of the mind now, especially for the film side of me, which is how many horses do I have? Um, is it going to be, you know, money that I'm pulling out of my own pocket? Am I going to Kickstarter or Indiegogo, you know, to look to other people to give me some cash? Um, what does this film entail? What do I need? You know, what can I strip out of it that's superfluous? I mean, do I need to have cop cars showing up on the scene? Like, I'm writing my latest picture that I'll start shooting in November today. And I had a scene in which a cop car shows up. And I'm like, okay, that's going to cost me 600 bucks. You know, do I need to have the cop car show up? You know, can I do this with two uniform guys? or excuse me, two plainclothes guys that are there and that they're just checking it out because there's enough of these bullshit tips all the time that they can't be bothered. Um, so, you know, you, you find ways to work around um, what you can afford. Uh, and so for me, I, I, I look to the great guru of sort of, you know, DIY and cheap filmmaking, that's Robert Rodriguez. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I first met Robert. He's my big name-dropping moment, I suppose. Back when, you know, he released <laughs> El Mariachi in 92 uh, because I was on the same panel with him at the Toronto International Film Festival, my old hometown. And we were talking about his picture, and I busted him there. I said, you know, Columbia's selling this picture. It's the $7,000 film. I'm like, dude, you know, this is like a friggin' picture that costs easily a million dollars that we're seeing here. He goes, oh, yeah, no, Absolutely. You know, in fact, with the sound editing and with the sound mix and with all the corrections that we did. And the Columbia, you know, rep basically stopped the screening, uh, or excuse me, the uh, panel right there, saying, no, no, can't talk about this. You know, because the myth 
of micro budget is also something that's well worth exploring. Uh, you know, there's a lot of tall tales out there, what pictures <laughs> cost or didn't cost. Um, but I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, in this case for Floss, it cost exactly as much as I had in my pocket that week. <laughs> Which is it's pretty great. awesome con considering yeah. the results. But, but, you know, I mean, I share that with everybody. I mean, and really, you know, everybody can make a film, just not everybody should. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you see that a lot. Um, I mean, Sundance has close to 9,000 submissions now every friggin' year. Wow. 9,000 submissions for 100 spots. So, you know, I mean, you just do the math on that, and there's an awful lot of pictures. The American film market, which is our you know, sort of, you know, North American barometer of indie pictures working outside the studio system, they've got 6,000 unsold pictures, you know, made by guys just like me, um, you know, creating cinematic orphans uh, with no stars and no audience, uh, kind of sitting there in limbo. And, and it's a shame because I, I, I think people make a, you know, a, a big mistake if they don't think about their audience from the get-go. And, and with Fuckload Scotch Tape, I, 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 I knew who our audience was, you know, starting off. So what's, uh, what's next for Floss and what do you ultimately uh, hope for it? Well, you know, uh, again, you, you always want your picture to be seen. Um, so, I mean, right now, uh, I'm literally putting the last finishing touches on the sound. You know, there's some minor rough spots that you guys saw at the screening, but that's, that's fairly typical. Um, and uh, so I've already sent it off to a whack of world-class festivals. I already got a call back from one programmer at a, at a big one saying, yeah, it looks like unofficially you're in, but you can't announce it. We can't tell you that you're in yet. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of subdiffusion and you know, behind-the-scenes <laughs> mm -hmm. stuff that goes on. Um, of course. You know, and that's cool. I mean, it's, you know, it's their gig. Um, I'll spend a year and a half pimping it on the festival circuit and then make digital downloads available either through a traditional distributor if somebody's silly enough to throw money at me or, you know, I'll just, you know, sell it, uh, you know, house by house for like the price of an app. I mean, at this kind of cost, micro cinema, I, I truly believe the only way American, you know, micro cinema and indie cinema, you know, can be successful is if it's available as easily as a Hulu or a Netflix, you know, click. Uh, yeah. It's, it's got to be at a price that makes sense. Uh, and that's bit literally, you know, three to four bucks, you know, for you to own it. Uh, because there's so much demand for, you know, audiences' time and money nowadays. I, I just, you know, don't think anybody can justify charging 15 bucks for a picture nowadays when you can buy friggin' Captain America for $9.99 on iTunes. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, it's Brave New World. I mean, right now, the movie industry is going through those revolutions that the, the music industry went through. Uh, and we all kind of know what ha happened there. I mean, CD stores are gone, right? I mm -hmm. mean, except for the, the eclectic LP shops and the used bins. Uh, I mean, everybody downloads now. Um, so, hey, before we move on to just kind of talking about anything else you're working on, um, any final thoughts about Fuckload of Scotch Tape or anything else we may not have touched on that you, you think is important to get out? I mean, I, I think Fuckload's one of those pictures that's not for everybody. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's a strange-ass picture. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not your traditional narrative in a lot of ways. It jumps all over the place in regards to time and space. Um, it's not PC, uh, but I'm assuming listeners of your program probably aren't the most PC people in the world. Um, you know. <laughs> if, no, if, they're if Mac. They were. We yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. this before. They're Mac. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a picture I'm proud of. Um, and again, uh, 
for me and what I'm trying to do with micro cinema is show that it is possible to tell stories um, that that are of interest uh, outside of the traditional Alvin and Chipmunk soccer mom paradigm. Um, I believe in adaptation. I believe in working with audiences that are already there. Jed's got a solid, you know, cred and track record. Um, you know, having a chance to 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 look at the tie-ins, you know, the mighty Marvel team up. Uh, you know, idea of marketing is something that the big guys use. Well, there's nothing wrong with us doing it as well. Uh, the more people that listen to Kevin's music or read Jed's book or see my film, I think the better it is for all of us because ultimately it gets down to this. We all want to be entertained and, and we all want to see something just a little bit stranger than perhaps, uh, you know, the, the, the bullshit that we see from Hollywood, which is just in the sequel and superhero business now anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, every chance I get to show Floss, I'll do it. If you're a film festival programmer, hell, if you're bored on a Saturday night, call me up. I'll come by your house. I'll show it to you. <laughs> well, something that you said there about, um, you know, Kevin Quain's music and seeing your yeah. film and reading Jets. I, I have to agree on all on all counts that all three of those you know, merged together just wonderfully into this film. So we're very, very excited to, uh, to have been part of the screening. And we'd like to thank you for, uh, you know, for having us out. Oh, no worries. You know, uh, again, one of the things that for me is so great about this process is meeting, you know, other fellow fanatics such as yourself that, that, you know, again, have interests in different areas, but also very similar areas. Um, And so that for me is great because no matter where I go, I find that there's an awful lot of us noir, you know, geek, uh, you know, creative types. um, And we're not going away. Uh, and I think the more we talk to each other and share uh, what it is that we're interested in, the better it is for all of us. So aside from uh, doing a lot of pimping for Fuck Lotus Scotch Tape, what else is uh, is coming up from Julian Grant? Well, let's see. I'm, the, I'm on the last five scenes of my next picture, which is called Sweet Leaf. Um, and I'll start shooting that in November or sooner. And that's the story of a, you know, mini mark robbery that goes, of course, horribly wrong. Um, it's kind of fun. It's got, you know, again, a lot of bleeding, a lot of singing. Uh, no, no zigging in this one. Um, so I'll do that. I'm doing some animated films as well and getting ready, of course, to, you know, again, as always, travel the world, uh, showing my pictures, hoping to you know, meet new friends and uh, companeros as we sort of, you know, go get hell bent and gutter bound. All right, Julian, where can people get in touch with you at? Um, best way to get me is through my website, and that's www.juliangrant.com. Uh, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, drop me a line. Check out some of the other shit that I've done. Uh, you know, feel free to send me love letters, hate letters. I don't care as long as you spell the name right. <laughs> well, hey, thanks so much for taking some time to come on and talk about Floss. I'm really glad we got to check it out. Well, thanks a lot, fellas. And again, good luck with everything. And uh, please keep me in mind, uh, whatever I can do in the future, I'm always happy to help out, okay? Yeah, big thanks to Julian Grant and Jedediah Ayers both for uh, for helping us out with this episode. What a couple of interesting guys they are. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And what episode of Booked would be truly complete without an appearance from Skip Papersley? And here he is with yet another installment in Booked News. 
This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. This week in Book News, a copy of Tintin in America was recently auctioned off in Paris for an astonishingly $1.6 million. This 1932 comic book featuring Tintin and all sorts of racist escapades tops the list as for the most expensive comic book in history. Book News caught up with author Herge... Herge... Hager... Herge... To get his response, he said... Quote, nothing, because he's dead. Mississippi's favorite son, John Grisham, is reportedly working on a new book, The Law Loves a Lawyerin. Grisham stated in an exclusive interview with Book News that it will contain 75% more law than his average book, but 12% less thriller. A Law Loves a Lawyerin is due to be out in November. Price to own at $39.99 for hardcover and $36.99 for Kindle and Nook. Now for the New York Times and bestsellers in fiction recap. A slow week pushes David Baldacci's The Innocent back to number five. Calico Joe by John Grisham just won't go away and is number four. Deadlock by Charlene Harris stays locked at number three. Jumpin' James Patterson's 11th hour is failing at number two. The number one spot is stolen by Stolen Prey by John Sanford. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley signing off. All right, once again, that was Skip Papersley with episode seven of Booked News. Uh, always hilarious to hear Skip telling us what's going on in books. Yeah, Skip is a gem, and we're so happy to have him on the show. Um, you know, the quickest way to find out when there's a new episode of Booked News, if that's the only thing you're listening for, or just to hear our wonderful voices, is uh, just like us on Facebook. So I find out our episodes on uh, posts instantly the second it's available. You can find us at facebook.com slash booked podcast. Yeah, and you know, I actually found out today from someone I work with, there's another way to get booked, yet another way. So if you're not um, if you're not down with the iTunes or the Zune Marketplace or what is it, podcast.com or, you know, all those types of things, there's also, evidently, I figured this out, an app called Instacast. I was talking to someone I work with and they said, are you on Instacast? And I said, I have no idea. And then we searched for booked. Lo and behold... Booked is available on Instacast, so it's a uh, for the iPhone. It's a ninety-nine cent download. Looks like um, it's just a way to connect you to podcasts and of uh, things of that kind of ilk. So, if you have Instacast and you love it, uh, you can get us through that too. So it's kind of exciting to hear. Not available for Android. Oh. Now, yeah, I won't go on a whole tirade, but it seems like all the stuff that I like best starts on ios that's all right because i've already contacted our lawyer since we didn't put it up there and we're going to sue those people so get it there while you can wait who are we suing instacast why we didn't authorize them to have our podcast on there i don't even know how it works i don't either that's what our lawyers are going to find out (laughs) the uh the uh, the the sean sean and ferg attorneys at law (laughs) they're already hard at work they were they working around the clock around the clock or they're working at a restaurant called Around the Clock. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, uh, what's coming up next for Booked? All right. Next week, we're back to a book. Um, we're going to be reviewing Rail C, the latest book by China Mieville. And the story behind why we're reviewing this is um, right about the time that our podcast was starting out last year. Um, I'm just kind of digging around online for you know interesting books and stuff, and I saw... 
a little book called Embassy Town, and I was like, hey, this looks interesting. Hey, Livius, what do you think about this? He totally shut it down. And then afterwards, I'd heard a lot of people talking about it, and, and I had some interesting conversation about it. So I felt very bitter about it. So, of course, I wouldn't let it go, and now we're reading Railsea. Yeah. I've actually I've read Mieville before I feel like Skip Papersly there. Um, <laughs> read one other book by him. I thought it was uh, I thought it was a pretty decent book, so looking forward to Railsea. That wraps it up for another fine episode, our 90th, our 90th episode. Happy 90th episode, Rob. Hey, happy 90th to you. Yep. Uh, what is the 90th? What is the 90th? It's like copper or something, right? The 90th anniversary, I believe, is Dentures. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. So that wraps it up for the Denture episode <laughs> of Booked Podcast. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep watching films. Catch you in the wrong. You love me now, but not for long. Thank you.